zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Stripes, released June 26, 1981. It was written by Len Bloom, Daniel Goldberg, and Harold Ramis, directed by Ivan Reitman, and released by Columbia Pictures. This is our second unofficial National Lampoon title for the show, after Caddyshack. If you didn't know, the National Lampoon was an American humor magazine in the 70s and 80s that spun off of the Harvard Lampoon. There's a great movie about its creation called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. I think it's on Netflix. The magazine was beloved by all the greats of the American comedy scene, and its contributors would find success throughout the field of entertainment. At the time, Johnny Carson was hosting The Tonight Show four nights a week with a best-of Carson special airing on the weekends, but was looking to scale back his workload an extra day. He negotiated down to three days a week, moving his weekend specials to the fourth day, and opening a slot in the Saturday night lineup. The creative team behind the Lampoon were, at the time, producing a popular nationally syndicated program called the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which mostly satirized current events. When Lorne Michaels was tasked with casting a sketch comedy program, he selected largely from the cast of the Radio Hour, including head writer Michael O'Donohue, and then from Second City Chicago. In selecting from the Lampoon group, Lorne Michaels specifically avoided Ramis, who he considered to be a writer and not a performer. The same creative staff began composing scripts and producing films in the 70s, and found huge success with National Lampoon's Animal House, written by National Lampoon co-founder Doug Kenny, with Harold Ramis and Chris Miller. It was enormously successful, the highest grossing comedy at the time, on a very modest budget. Most of the same people were involved with the creation of last year's Caddyshack, though for whatever reason it didn't carry the National Lampoon brand. Neither did this. On his way to the Meatballs premiere, director Ivan Reitman came up with the perfect pitch for a sequel to Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, entitled Cheech and Chong Join the Army. He pitched it to Paramount, who greenlit the film In the Room, though the eventual sequel to Up in Smoke, 1980's next movie, would actually land at Universal. Len Bloom and Dan Goldberg wrote the first pass together, and Cheech and Chong's manager loved it, but the duo required complete creative control to attach themselves. Some sources claim that, without the pair's knowledge, the manager also demanded a 25% share of Reitman's next five films, but that sounds insane to me. I don't yeah. think they would ever Nobody make that would request. Nobody ever agree to that. That sounds like he's looking for a rejection. Yeah, exactly. Reitman was not willing to surrender creative control, and instead suggested to the original writers that if they brought Harold Ramis on for a rewrite, he could tailor the story for himself and Bill Murray as leads, and eventually talk Murray into co-starring, though Ramis was none too keen about appearing in front of the camera, and Lorne Michaels again strongly advised against his casting. Reitman took the package to Columbia to pitch with Ramis as one of the leads. Ramis was hot off the successes of writing Animal House, Meatballs, and Caddyshack, but had yet to make his feature film acting debut. Columbia vetoed Ramis in the role of Russell, on account of a disastrous screen test, and had Dennis Quaid, P.J. Soul's husband at the time, in to read for it. But Reitman offered Ramis the part anyway when Bill Murray said he wouldn't do the movie otherwise, hoping to heal the rift of Murray's having been chosen for SNL without him. Well, I'm really glad they didn't go with Dennis Quaid. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's right for it either, but no. we'll talk about some other people they were considering that I think would have worked out just fine. 
But also, why is PJ Souls with him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she could do better. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't always the person he is today, though. No, I know that. I'm just saying, like, I think I think she's out of his league. Yeah, no, for sure. The film shot almost entirely in Kentucky with some location and soundstage shoots in California. The U.S. Army was very cooperative with the production, even offering up locations at Fort Knox to shoot at. While it may seem counterintuitive to support a film that portrays the troops as buffoons, it provided a major boost to recruitment rates in the following years. Well, they made it look fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We open on a commercial playing on an old school TV with visible scan lines. The camera pans away from the television to reveal Bill Murray as John Winger getting a shoe shine. When Winger steps outside to his cab, he finds a parking ticket for blocking a hydrant under his windshield wiper. He tosses it on the sidewalk, and a fare climbs into his back seat. He takes the men a few blocks, but they hop out of the cab without paying. He can't seem to catch up with them and quickly gives up the chase, but is surprised beside his cab by his next passenger, a dowager in a mink stole. Ah! God, I thought that was a dog around your neck. The surprised sound that he makes here reminds me of one of the sounds he makes when he's trying to shake the ectoplasm off of his fingers in the God. library. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ah. He tells her he thought her furs were a dog corpse at first glance, and she's not amused. If that's humor, don't bother. She's headed to the airport and asks that he take special care with her bags. Loading them into the cab, Bill Murray actually smashed his balls on set, and they left his reaction in the cut. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, oh, my balls. Oh, my balls. We hard cut to Russell Ziski as played by Harold Ramis teaching an ESL class for adults. He quizzes the room on their English proficiency and one man claims to know a few words and then teaches them to the class. Son of bitch, shit. Son of bitch, shit. We cut to Winger weaving dangerously through traffic. His fare accuses him of driving carelessly and he picks up a camera off the passenger seat to start snapping photos of her in the back. Later, he pretends to have ingested loads of cough syrup before starting his shift, and drives peeking through his fingers at the road. We're going to be killed! Oh no. Just keep your hands on the killed. wheel and slow down! Not <laughs> the Dowager tries to scribble down his name to get him fired, but Winger pulls a straight up, you can't fire me, I quit. He slams on his brakes halfway across George Rogers Clark Memorial Bridge in Louisville, Kentucky, and steps to the edge. He hucks the keys to the cab into the river effectively stranding his passenger with her bags locked in his trunk, unable to make her flight. The last time I watched this movie was at a double feature at the New Beverly Cinema for Diablo Cody's Mondo Diablo Festival, and it was paired with Thank You for Smoking, and father and son directors Ivan and Jason Reitman were right. both there. And during the Q&A, I remember at one point Jason was asking how long the shoot lasted, including the New York stuff, and Ivan was like, there was no new york stuff but he thought that that beginning scene was in new york mm -hmm. and that that was a bridge in new york he's like no that was all kentucky but apparently it's a common misconception that the city that this part takes place in is either new york or chicago and it's like no this is all it's all supposed to be kentucky it's kentucky playing kentucky it's kentucky playing kentucky yeah oh i didn't i didn't know that either yeah i thought we were in chicago yeah exactly <laughs> I, I i didn't even think that much i just thought like city non-specific right but when he's getting his shoe shine there's a poster over his shoulder that says like louisville university mm -hmm. and the cab says louisville on his license yeah. and everything yeah i think but later they they make references to chicago like the character is from chicago right yes they do okay and obviously bill murray's from chicago right we cut back to professor ziski's english class where he seems to have spent the whole class teaching his students the lyrics to sean cassidy's to do ron ron to do ron ron i met her on a monday and my heart stood still da -do, ron, 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 da -do, ron, ron. saw 
somebody told me that her name was Jill. Might have been more useful to pick a song with fewer gibberish words. But okay. <laughs> I think that's part of the joke, though. Yeah. They're not actually learning English when they're yeah. saying any of these things. And he could be using a song to teach them English, but mm-hmm. this isn't one of those songs. Mm-hmm. We cut to Winger walking home in the absence of his cab and singing his rendition of the Amazing Rhythm Aces' Big Ol' Brew off their 1980 album, How the Hell Do You Spell Rhythm? which cracked me up because I always get stuck on that word and it's in the name of their band and they're not even sure. It's actually spelled incorrectly in the album name too as a joke. (laughs) Winger is carrying a box of pizza and a dress and a dry cleaning bag and he notices his personal car being repossessed right outside his apartment. That's my car! As the car blasts past him, closer than I'd expect, considering it's clearly Bill Murray in the shot, he drops the pizza and the dress in the street. He hucks a board at his own departing vehicle and his throw is just short of target. He scoops up the pizza, which was face down in the street, and needlessly flops it back into the box. He also collects the dress and heads up to his apartment. Right away, we notice dozens of photos of Winger's girlfriend, no doubt taken by Winger with that fancy camera he seems to have left behind in the taxi. His girlfriend emerges from the bathroom in just panties, and he follows her to the bedroom with her disheveled dress. She's clearly pissed about it, and he takes the opportunity to add that he's quit his job. This is the last straw for her. I know. I gotta straighten out. This is ridiculous. Right. That's what you said last week. Well, you know, how much can you straighten out in one week? She tears into his work ethic and slacker hobbies like Tito Puente albums and Rocky and Bullwinkle reruns. She moves around the room, packing her stuff into a duffel bag. Winger pulls the much-reviled I'll-kill-myself-if-you-leave threat that we hated so much in Falling in Love Again and Tribute last season. He crawls to her on his hands and knees, begging... But luckily for Anita, she has some self-respect and doesn't fall for it this time. As she crosses the threshold of his life, he throws a Hail Mary. You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! And she's gone. Immediately, we see Russell Ziski coming the opposite direction to pay his friend a visit. He can tell Winger is a mess, especially when he tosses his basketball hard through a bay window and down to a street a couple floors below. Winger shares how his day is gone. In the last two hours, I've lost... My job, my apartment, my car, and my girlfriend. You still have your health. Winger picks up a pipe wrench and sweeps the shards of glass out of the broken window so a man on the street can throw the ball back. The funniest part of this bit is Winger reaching all the way out the window for the ball and not reacting at all to the bad throw when the (laughs) ball comes through a different window because it's like he didn't know until after it entered the room. I always assumed that it wasn't just a bad throw, that the guy just intentionally... (laughs) just to piss him off yeah Yeah. later russell and winger are watching television together and another army commercial comes on winger says he's considering enlisting but russell points out that they are a bit old to even consider it in truth murray was barely 30 at the time but ramus was 36 and likely too old to enlist he bets winger he can't do five push-ups and it's clearly a struggle never heard bones creak like that Winger finishes the five with admittedly bad form. Russell suggests a monastery in place of the army. Did you ever see a monk get wildly fucked by some teenage girls? Never. So much for a monastery. Winger tells Russell that with all the money he'll make, he can buy a Winnebago, a ham-fisted foreshadowing of the film's generally unpopular fourth act. Winger then moves to convince Russell that he too should join up and that it would be good for both of them. Aside from camaraderie, it becomes clear right away why Winger has roped Russell into the scheme. Well, I was going to go over there. We could use your car. We'd have to, wouldn't we? Yeah. 
We cut right to them signing up at the recruitment office. Together they're asked a series of questions. When the man asks if they've ever been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor, they're both quick to emphasize the word convicted in their denials. Convicted? Yeah. No. Never convicted. When he asks if they're homosexuals, apparently a required part of this process at the time, they pretend that the military would prefer that they are. No, we're not homosexual, but we are willing to learn. That line really got me. Yeah. Like, because I, was, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. I, it's been many, many years since I've seen this film. And uh, obviously it was not, you know, it was don't ask, don't tell wasn't a thing, I guess. Yeah. And it was... Uh, it was it was ask, tell at the time. It was ask and tell. Well, right, but but, the, but it was clearly that the army was willing to ignore that yeah. just just to get people in the in the room. It was well, funny. they, uh, in, in the movie In the Army Now, which is very similar to this, it has kind of an opposite scene where they're trying to get out of service and so they're pretending to be gay. And it's not but, enough. <laughs> but they can't, uh, Polly Shore and Andy Dick can't bring themselves to kiss each other. Oh. And so then they're like, all right, I guess you're going to Chad. <laughs> is it hot in Chad? They sign their paperwork to officially enlist, and we cut to Winger and Russell at the bus depot on their way to boot camp. Winger has noticed a beautiful MP named Stella Hansen, played by the lovely PJ Souls, while Russell has been roped into a chat with Elmo, as played by Judge Reinhold, who's looking for someone to hold his drugs while he gets checked in. Winger thanks MP Hansen for saving his life in Vietnam, but then corrects to Normandy Beach when she denies the claim. She has no patience for his smartness, but he keeps at it. Are you on one of these buses? Not yet, ma'am. She escorts him to the clipboard to be checked in for the buses, and Winger makes a half-assed effort to set Russell up with the equally adorable MP holding the clipboard, played by the lovely Sean Young. Russell seems to make faster progress with his MP, who jokes that if he doesn't get on the bus, she'll have to shoot him, but always smiling. Don't make me shoot you. Climb aboard, soldier. As the girls compare notes, they are interrupted by John Candy as Dewey Oxberger, who addresses them as stewardesses to ask if there's a movie on the flight, and then laughs at his own awful joke. <laughs> a movie on this flight. <laughs> For some reason, I will always laugh harder at a joke if the character who made it laughs at their own dumb <laughs> joke. Especially when it's John Candy. <laughs> well, and he's very similar to his character in Volunteers. Yeah. Uh, which I guess was like, would only be a couple years later. Yeah. Uh, just, but he's also just John Candy, so... <laughs> you can't help it. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a portly character whose last name began with Ox? No. What if I told you it was in the movie Popeye? Uh... Nope. Richard, do you know the name? I, I, I know it's the, the, the fighter... His first name also begins with Ox. Yeah. If that I, helps. I know I know who it is, but I can't I can't think of it. Ox Blood Oxheart. Ox Blood Oxheart. I just remember that Linda Hunt played his mom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a mud of myself. We see the buses on the road pulling up to Fort Arnold, once the name of a real fort in the eighteenth century, until its namesake, Benedict Arnold, was found to be a traitor to the nation. <laughs> the actual base used for the production is Fort Knox in Kentucky, which also played itself in the James Bond film Goldfinger. The bus is waved up to a building by Warren Oates as Sergeant Hulka. As he guides the men inside, he is pestered by Captain Stillman, as played by John Larroquette. He doesn't actually have anything to say. He's just here asserting dominance over the sergeant, mm -hmm. despite being almost 20 years his junior. As they part ways, Stillman trips over a small yellow metal box and orders it removed, not even knowing what it is. Have that removed. Inside the building, we see Sergeant Hulka address the men with the typical drill sergeant mumbo-jumbo, He's their new mama. He's going to make them all soldiers. And Winger can't help but crack wise. Yes, I didn't hear you. Yes, Sergeant. That's what I want to hear. Think this guy's overdoing it a bit? 
Hulka picks Winger out of the crowd and orders him out of the room for 50 push-ups. We cut right to the men getting their standard issue haircuts. Everyone but Judge Reinhold, Ramus, and Murray get their heads shaved down to the scalp, but these last three, as the biggest names in the cast, somehow manage to keep most of their hair. Oxberger seems to be taking it the hardest, and when Russell starts impersonating a Hare Krishna in front of him, he loses his temper and the guys have to break it up. Later, as the men are fitted for uniforms, Winger offers Hulka an apology, but he doesn't respond. There's a couple of lines in this movie that I I feel much like the balls scene were just like left in or maybe yeah. that there was something actually happening on set because uh, John Candy goes like, why is your so long? Like, like, like I, I feel like maybe the actors weren't told. <laughs> that well, that is gonna... true that, uh, well, at least according to IMDB trivia, none of them knew that oh. they were even going to get their haircuts this day. Um, and, and Candy, according to the trivia bit was especially upset about how short his hair was cut. Mm. The men are put through some marching practice, and Russell takes it upon himself to sing along to the marching beat, and Winger is quick to harmonize. Quickly, the whole gang is on board, and for whatever reason, Hulka doesn't give a shit about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd expect him to shout this all down. In the barracks, we find the men sitting in a circle introducing themselves, starting with Cruiser, played by John Deal. He seems a little slow and Oxberger brings it to the room's attention. Because uh, that's why my guys in my car club call me the cruiser. You should call him the dork. <laughs> Knock it off. Cruiser finishes his story, admitting that he enlisted to avoid being drafted, but Hulka has to inform him that there is no longer a draft. There was one? <laughs> I don't even get that joke. <laughs> you just said there was. Next up is Francis Sawyer, who informs everyone to call him Psycho. According to IMDb Trivia, the name Francis was chosen because it's the middle name of Norman Bates from Hitchcock's Psycho. But I looked it up, and Bates' middle name is Samuel after his father, so that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Any of you guys call me Francis, and I'll kill you. He also warns them against touching him or his stuff. Now, any of you homos touch me, and I'll kill you. Hulka breaks the tension. Lighten up, Francis. (laughs) Hulka reminds Francis that these men are his brothers in arms. One of these men may save your life one of these days, you understand that? Then again, maybe one of us won't. (laughs) Up next is Dewey Ox Oxberger, who says he's working on his weight problem, but everyone assures him that he has no such problem. (laughs) They're all just like, no, what are you talking about? He says a doctor recommended he sign up for EST, that trendy self-help group that we've brought up before in our reviews of The Incredible Shrinking Woman, The Howling, and New Year's Evil. Ox has decided on using the U.S. Army as a free gym. Russell is next, and essentially tells the men that if they head into battle, he promises to be right behind them. Winger makes a big speech about volunteering himself as a leader for the group. An army without leaders is like a foot without a big toe. And Sergeant Hulka isn't always going to be there to be that big toe for us. He calls for his bunkmates to applaud their big toe, and Hulka decides to call it a night. He seems kind of flattered here. Like, oh, okay, uh, we'll see about that, buddy, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. like, you know, you, you'd think that, like, they have this adversarial relationship, but I feel like he, he kind of likes him. Yeah, I, I can't really tell. I, can't, I have a hard time reading Warren Oates half the time. Yeah. On his way out, Hulka announces the packed plans for tomorrow, including a 10-mile run. So you better hit them monks, my little babies. 
Or Sergeant Hulka with the big toes going to see how far he can stick it up your ass. We hear Reveille on a trumpet before dawn, and the men are startled out of their bunks by Hulka with a giant trash can. It's clearly raining outside, and Hulka announces that the five-mile run shall commence shortly, half the run he promised them the night before. Winger asks for a rain check, and Hulka doubles the length of the run to ten miles, fulfilling the previous night's promise, but somehow making it Winger's fault. We cut from the barracks to Captain Stillman's office, where he's wearing an army helmet and playing with toy soldiers, running them over with a tank. At the end of the game, he presses a button on the toy tank, which actually triggers a small explosion before Corporal Tyson enters with paperwork for him. Stillman is tired of all the reports and tears a pin from a grenade in a show of frustration. He hands the grenade to Tyson to dispose of. Stillman wants to see his men in training and asks Tyson to bring the jeep around. Tyson runs out of the building, and we hear the grenade explode off camera. We get a long training montage of Hulka's men, and at the end, they're all carrying Oxberger back to the barracks. <laughs> the training montage is peppered with shots of Winger doing push-ups in the rain under Hulka's supervision, probably as punishment for making jokes. It becomes clear that Winger and Russell are not having the time of their lives, as Winger predicted. Russell comes back from a live ammunition exercise with a bullet hole in his glasses and facetiously thanks Winger for talking him into this. Before we get into this next part, I should mention mm -hmm. that we watched the extended cut of the movie because I couldn't find the regular cut. Everything that I have is is the director's cut, which has an extra half hour of the film. Between the fact that we had to watch the director's cut and that I haven't seen this movie in probably 15 years, it felt a lot longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this this whole next sequence is... Is 100% is cut out of yeah, the movie. Yeah, like, I don't... I, I was... I had watched this movie uh, for the podcast, but I had also watched it about a month ago. Yeah. Because I forgot we were watching it for the podcast. <laughs> um, and I was like, God, what the hell is this? I don't know what this is. Yeah. And I was like, this is the most boring garbage. Apparently, it was Columbia's favorite part of the movie. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And, but Reitman said it's not good enough. The and studio it doesn't or the it. country? Uh, maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make more sense after you hear yeah. what this is about. Here we go. <laughs> Winger takes Russell out to the airfield for a quick break, and Russell brings along a small container of pills that he borrowed from Elmo. Winger identifies them as micro dots of acid, and the two men take cover in the back of a plane on the runway, which quickly fills with a special forces team. Winger and Russell bluff the group's captain with fake names, claiming to outrank him. Well, I never heard of you, and you're not on my roster. <laughs> That's just the way we like to keep it, Captain. It's double, double top secret. Intelligence? Some. <laughs> Anything I could tell you would be a lie, Captain, so how about we just tag along with you to your destination, and then we'll go our separate ways. Later in the flight, Winger wakes to the other passengers lining up for a jump. He barely gets to the open plane door with his parachute in time to jump out behind Russell. The two men wander the jungle for a while until they step in a pair of snare traps. Hanging upside down, they're ambushed by a group of guerrilla soldiers who take them to their captain. Around a campfire, the guerrillas share their Colombian blunts, and Russell offers them what's left of Elmo's acid. The captain dumps the acid in the community stew over the fire. Suddenly, Winger and Russell are thrown up against the side of a tree for what looks like a death by firing squad, but Winger wins them over with an impromptu rendition of Quando, Quando, Quando. <laughs> Is this a real song? Quando, 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 Quando. I don't know. Quando, 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 
Maybe. I mean, they, they all chime in, like everybody knows the words, but I didn't know if it was a real song. Well, uh, I believe they sing this song in the Blues Brothers. Do they? Um, the When they go to recruit all the band members that are doing nightclub acts. Yeah. Um, I think that this is one of the songs that they that they're singing. All right. Well, if that's true, we'll cut in their version right here. Dime cuando, cuando, cuando. And then here's the original version. Dime cuando, cuando, cuando. Winger and Russell sneak away from the distracted party and head back to the plane that they arrived in to hitch a ride back to the base. We cut to Stillman's office where he watches the female cadets in their showers which apparently have open windows to the outside of the building at eye level. Oh, God, I wish I was a loofah. Look at that. That's... Apparently, Ivan Reitman didn't know what a loofah was when he <laughs> improvised this line. He's like, what did you say? And he had to explain it to him on the set. I, I feel like this is the film where, and I did. I was looking up John Larroquette, and the only film that I didn't recognize before this was The Green Ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be for next year. The poster looks awesome yeah. for that. Yeah. But I feel like this is the movie where John Larroquette kind of cemented his persona sure yeah like this kind of lecherous but overly confident but then when the going gets tough has a total meltdown yeah. like for <laughs> his character on night court yeah corporal tyson leads colonel glass into the office and when glass shouts at stillman he's so shocked that he drops his telescope through the window outside glass is here to convey a message from general barnicky Barnicky needs an elite team to man an upcoming experimental vehicle called the EM-50. Our newest soldiers with our latest weapon, that kind of thing. Yes, sir. You can count on me, sir. Back in the barracks, Oxberger has lured Cruiser into a game of cards that he doesn't know how to play. He even shares his hand with Ox, the person he's playing against, for advice. If it were me, I'd bet everything. But that's me, I'm an aggressive gambler, Mr. Vegas. <laughs> Cruiser takes the bait, and Ox crushes him with a full house, but the game ends quickly when Hulka enters to confront the men about rumors of his people leaving the base. Winger pretends to step forward with Russell, but at the last second, Winger withholds his confession, and Russell gets trash can scrubbing duties. So this scene, this is usually the scene that's directly after uh, where it would cut before the airplane scene. Right. Like, it, it went from whatever the scene was before that to this immediate like i heard people have been leaving the base you know yeah I mean, it had, so it didn't make it, sense that much yeah i mean i had the stillman's office scene in, in between but you know but you just assume that they left the base yeah because it's they went for a beer yeah, run or something exactly yeah. because hulka knows winger is lying the rest of the platoon are assigned to kp duty for the following two weekends kp standing for kitchen patrol how does that sound to you mister i think it sucks Winger is invited to the latrine for a private chat with Hulka, where he's invited to take a consequence-free swing at the sergeant. Winger takes a clumsy swing with a hand in his pocket, and Hulka dodges easily and catches Winger with a deep gut punch. Apparently this part Columbia wanted to take out because it wasn't funny enough. And it's like, this cements their whole relationship. I love this yeah. this scene, where because he, he's explaining to him, like, you don't know anything about it being a soldier. Oh, yeah, all that marching is like, I ain't talking about that crap. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's talking about, like, honor and duty and discipline and, like... And at the time, like, he doesn't have a comeback for it, because there mm -hmm. isn't one, because he's being very straightforward, like, you don't have these important facets to your character. That night, Russell wakes up from an erotic dream to find Winger absent from the top bunk. Do you guys recall the next time that a Ghostbuster will wake up from an erotic dream? <laughs> That doesn't make sense. You can't remember things that haven't happened yet. We cut to Winger, duffel bag in hand, sneaking off the base by cover of night. He's caught escaping by Russell, who tackles him to the ground. 
Luckily for them, the first MPs on the scene are Stella and Louise from the bus depot earlier. You're not going to report this or anything, are you? I'm going to treat it like a UFO sighting. Uh, I saw something, but I'm not quite sure what it was. They drop the boys off back at their barracks, and the next day we see Captain Stillman checking in on some mortar exercises. Then we cut to Hulka and friends doing a rope climbing exercise. When one of the men falls off the rope, Hulka offers to show them how it's done. Can't climb a rope. It's physically impossible. <laughs> it's going to keep coming up <laughs> over and over again. Ow! I told you, no one can climb a rope. It's physically impossible. Back at the mortars, Stillman demands a demonstration. All right, soldier. Let's see how you fire that mortar. What coordinates, sir? Coordinates. Yes, sir. They determine where the mortars go. Ah, soldier. The army has spent a lot of money teaching you how to fire that thing. Now set it, then fire it. Sir, we don't know where the shells are going to go. With the only way to learn anything is to do it. Back in the woods, Hulka has managed to climb the rope and stands on the platform at the top, but at the same time, the mortar team are bullied into firing blind and demolish the platform out from under him. Incoming! Ox asks if this means they're done with today's exercises, and Hulka uses his last ounce of strength to choke Ox to death. I was <laughs> oh, yeah, the weird sound he makes. <laughs> I, I also love John. John Larroquette just reads the lines so great. Coordinates? Yeah. Like, just the way he says things when he's, like, agitated. Yeah. In some early draft of the script, Hulka was meant to die here in this scene and then be replaced later by an identical twin brother. What? <laughs> A joke that was used to great effect later in Broken Lizard's film Beer Fest. We cut to Stillman's office where he blames the incident on Sergeant Crocker, but when Winger calls BS, he tells them that they have three days left before graduation and they'll have to train themselves the rest of the way. That night, Winger leads the boys to the Pom Pom Club, a nearby bar with a big stage for mud wrestling. MC Dave Thomas introduces three wrestlers and opens up the contest to challengers. Winger talks Ox into the ring and uses Ox's money to buy the challenge slot. My big man here is gonna do it all! Which obviously reminds me of the climax of Groundhog Day when Rita bids her entire account balance to win Phil Connors at the bachelor auction. $339.88. Dave Thomas, Dave Thomas? Mm hmm. Yeah. Not Wendy's Dave Thomas. Yeah, he's handing out square burgers on stage. He had a sandwich with him. No, Doug McKenzie Dave Thomas. Got it. When the wrestling match begins, the girls start with a clear advantage, and when Ox tries to fight back, an extra girl jumps into the ring to help her friends. At the start of the second round, the three girls are now six, and they dogpile on Ox in the ring, but as the film's triumphant score pumps back into the soundtrack, Ox turns things around and stands up in the middle of the ring with four bikini tops in his hand, and it seems like that means he won the fight. <laughs> I don't know, they're like ringing bells like it's over. Well, and this is another one of those uh, moments where I feel like there's something, well, something must have been going on on set. Because when, when Bill Murray tries to go up to get Ox to give him a pep talk, one of the girls says, why don't you come in here? Oh, I, I definitely got the impression that she improvised that line. Okay. She was like, I want Bill Murray to be in here in this scene. <laughs> uh, uh, I felt like it was like, oh man, Bill Murray said something like off screen. No, he, he uh, when they were setting up for this scene, John Candy was uncomfortable with it because mm. he didn't know he didn't like the implication of him being with all these women and, and that if that was weird of him to be doing. And the other guys had to basically talk him into doing it. 
but um bill murray was like one of the people that was helping him get more comfortable with doing the scene yeah so i don't think he was like against it or anything but he just tells her like no i'm a gentleman ma'am or something yeah like yeah that. just shuts it down just then the club is raided by the authorities in another amazing stroke of luck for winger and russell their favorite mps show up to fake arrest them and sneak them out of the raid the rest of the platoon are chewed out by stillman and he considers punishing them but instead plans to enjoy watching them fuck up the parade tomorrow in front of the general so he can recommend that they repeat basic training i would be less excited to see my subordinates fail in front of the general though isn't that partly your fault yeah the mps drop winger and russell off at the base and stupidly let it slip that they've been left in charge of checking on the general's house while he's away in washington the guys rush into the house uninvited and the girls follow them inside louise and russell settle on a couch in the living room while winger starts putting stella through what he calls the jemima treatment in the kitchen he picks her up and sets her down on the stove and then starts poking around underneath her with a spatula apparently they shot this at like three o'clock in the morning and they were both completely like crazy exhausted so her reactions are just 100 percent real to whatever bill murray decided to do in this <laughs> scene it, it, it feels like that yeah mm-hmm. it, this, this whole this whole sequence feels like a very late night shoot yeah. And it's supposed to be because they're supposed to have just gotten back from this club, so it kind of makes sense. Then he pulls out a rolling pin and he rolls it all over her, and last he tortures her with an ice cream scoop until she admits that she's falling for him. They move upstairs to the general's bedroom. Meanwhile, Louise introduces Russell to the force field game, where you try to get as close as you can to the other player without breaking the invisible force field around them and touching them. The game only lasts about 30 seconds, though, before Russell intentionally touches Louise. You just broke my force field. Yeah, you win. Up in the general's room, we see an empty bed and a lit fireplace until suddenly the chest at the foot of the bed opens and Stella sits up in a nightie from inside with Winger underneath her. Back at the barracks, Winger and Russell return to a depressed group of guys resigned to fail the parade and be forced through basic training all over again. Winger reminds them they have three hours to train before the parade starts. We cut to the platoon training and Ramus is leading a march. Your left, your left, your left, your left, your left. Come on, rhythm, hut, two, three, four, black guys, help the white guys, okay? And one of the black recruits is caught off guard by the comment and asks what Russell just said. Yo, man, what did he say? He said the black guys, the white guys. And out of nowhere, the writers decided that Oxberger is probably a shitty racist. I yeah. Think, yeah, I didn't understand this turn here. Like, like, I, even if he was racist, I don't understand. He's just been like a, a goofy, like, loser guy the whole time. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, oh, I also hate black people, by the way. I don't feel like anybody said anything that would prompt that. Right. Yeah. But he gets in the black guy's face and starts shoving him around and, and basically picks a fight with him. And Winger has to break it up and decides it's time to address the men with a motivational speech. He tells them that they're all a bunch of American mutts and that they can work together. We've been kicking ass for 200 years! We're 10 and 1! <laughs> Which is one, was always one of my favorite lines for this whole movie. But the one, of course, being Vietnam, the, the only war that we didn't win. But uh, sadly, we've lost a couple more since then, so it's, it's like 10 and 3 now. How's the war on drugs doing? Uh, 10 and 4, maybe. War on Christmas? <laughs> i don't know that's pending i think we're winning i won't say who we are though <laughs> <laughs> fuck christmas <laughs> that's were, a little hint <laughs> although it reminds me of my my story of the crazy lady that encountered me out by my car <laughs> the last thing she said to me was if you have a christmas tree they leave you alone i promise you that what are you talking about <laughs> i haven't told you this story no oh my god oh well, well strap in 
I was picking up uh, bagels for the uh, for an office, like an office room for Pie Town. Yeah. And uh, this woman comes out of the store at the same time as me, and we're both kind of getting into our cars. And she looks at me, and goes, "Were you in my car?" He's like, "Were you in my car?" And she goes, "I go, no." And she goes, "Somebody's been in my car." It's like, <laughs> well, is, is there is there anything missing? It's like, no, no, it's the same same old thing. They come after me. They hassle me. They follow me home. They killed my husband. Oh God! <laughs> <I'm> Whoa! Like, <laughs> they? Like, no, I oh wasn't my, me. I wasn't in there. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know how to respond. Yeah, for a second, you were like, "She's on to me." <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I said, "Well, I'm sorry. I gotta go." And, and that's what she yelled. If you have a Christmas tree, they leave you alone. I promise you that. This wow. little one was about to get into a car and drive. Wow. <laughs> and you're like, I'm just going to take my bagels and walk away slowly. And I never got in a stranger's car again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all staying in, by the way. Good. I love that story. I like it. They killed my husband. <laughs> they what killed the my fuck? Husband. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how did we get here? <laughs> bagels. His halftime speech ends with a reminder that all they have to do is copy his movements and words exactly. We cut to the parade the next morning. Everyone has arrived except Winger and company. Stillman is panicking, and we cut to the hangar where the men are all fast asleep. Graduation's at 2 o'clock. What time is it now? It's 3 o'clock. We still got an hour to sleep. When they realize their mistake, the group rushes off toward the ceremony, seemingly lost. They finally arrive at the parade, and Winger leads the group in a song. Where the hell have you been, soldier? Training, sir! Training, sir! What kind of training, son? Army training, sir! Army training, sir! They do a bit of coordinated gun juggling, and the crowd goes wild despite their undeniably terrible form. General Barnaki is especially impressed when he's informed that these are Hulka's men and completed their training alone. Barnaki is so impressed that he orders them assigned to the special EM-50 project. We cut to a plane taking off to Italy, and then we see the men choosing their bunks in a new Italian barracks. Before they're completely settled, Sergeant Hulka pays them a visit. It is alive. He's here to give them a hard time and see that they're the best platoon in the country. The next day, the men are introduced to the EM-50 Urban Assault Vehicle, a 26-foot 1976 GMC motorhome Palm Beach. At first, it inspires laughter because it resembles exactly a five-year-old motorhome. <laughs> We used to see this same make and model uh, vehicle parked across the street from our friend's house. There was always yeah. a dude hanging out oh, in it. That, um, that guy was creepy. Yeah. He was up to no good. Meth. He would just sit. <laughs> no, it was it was, it was was worse than meth. It was like he would only sit next to public parks. Well, was it, yeah, he mm. was always in front of the park. Yeah. yeah. We see the men filling it with ammunition until Sergeant Hulka pulls Winger and Russell aside to inform them that they will spend tonight babysitting the vehicle. And the rest of you got the weekend off. Dismissed? Yeah. <laughs> Hours later, Winger is passing out against the side of the vehicle as Russell pours over the instruction manual. It turns out that when they got assigned to Italy, the girls were assigned to Germany. Winger proposes a little road trip to visit them. No. 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 No, John. No. I'll drive. Okay. Later that night, Captain Stillman brings his girlfriend to the hangar, intending to show off the super-secret military vehicle. He has a panic attack, though, when he finds the EM-50 gone. I, I love his reaction here too. My truck! Are you gonna get sick or Who something? Who the fuck's my truck? What? The rest of Hulk's platoon are scrambled on a covert recovery mission because Stillman doesn't want to get in trouble for misplacing the asset. 
The team are evidently told that Winger and Russell are Russian spies, mm -hmm. and Psycho couldn't care less. All I know is I finally get to kill somebody. We see the EM-50 rolling up the driveway of Greystone Mansion, here playing the part of Schloss von Habsburg, Germany. The girls run out to see them. We cut to Stella's room that night as she undresses for Winger on the bed. He dives into the mattress just as she runs for cover, and we cut to Russell and Louise taking a bath together. This is all extended footage. Yeah. Back in Stella's room, she lays down in front of the fireplace, and Winger just wiggles around fully dressed on top of her, but she pretends to like it. It's honestly kind of annoying to watch, and I'm sure that that's why it's not in the regular cut of the movie, because it just seems really weird and uncomfortable. But she pretends to like it well enough. I guess I still believe that PJ Souls thinks this is funny, even if I don't. <laughs> we cut to the rest of the platoon on approach in the rain, but Captain Stillman has assigned himself the role of navigator and is taking them way off course. Hulka tries to correct him. No, sir, if we turn right, we're going right. Sergeant, when I want your input, I will ask for it. Thank you. As a result, on their way north from Italy to the fictional town of Schloss von Habsburg, Germany, which, for the sake of the plot, I am assuming is north of Nuremberg in central Germany, they take a last-minute right turn into what is now the Czech Republic, which is only about two hours off course. We cut to the Czechoslovakian border crossing, where a guard, played by Joe Flaherty, seems to be just showing up for work and pouring himself a cup of coffee to warm up after a walk in the rain. Jackass! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As they approach the guard shack, Stillman's truck drives right through the wooden gate arms, Flaherty is so shocked that he tosses his coffee in his partner's face and runs outside where he actually fires his weapon at the truck as it disappears down the road into Czechoslovakia. But it's not just a border crossing. Like, this is like a military base. For I think this is just a border crossing. You think but so? They get taken yeah. to a military base. Oh. Yeah. Okay, I just thought this was the gate of the military base. I, I'm not sure. I, I think this is because it's technically a border on the Iron Curtain that it's technically all of them were guarded militarily mm -hmm. this way. Oh, okay. I just, because the, these guys at the gate are wearing the same uniforms as the guys on the base. Right, I figured yes. they were all right. connected. Yeah. When Hulka tries to point out what just happened, he's shouted down again and decides to go rogue. He tucks and rolls out of the back and sneaks off the road. But a few hundred feet away, the truck is swarmed with armed border guards and Stillman's men are captured. When the guards throw open the back of the truck, the whole platoon is armed and aiming in their face. But after a second, they all hand their weapons over and surrender. Hulka sees this happen before disappearing into the woods, disappointed in his men. The next day, we see that the platoon have been detained in a small outpost, but Hulka is keeping a watchful eye. We see the men being tortured one at a time for information. We cut back to Germany, where Winger, Stella, Russell, and Louise are checking out of their hotel. As they load into the EM-50, they receive a transmission from Sergeant Hulka, but evidently don't recognize his voice. He briefs them on the situation and then ends transmission, and Russell realizes, using the EM-50's onboard computer to chart the coordinates, that the platoon has been captured in Czechoslovakia. Amazingly, it doesn't occur to them until moments later that the 41st Armored Division Bravo Company is their own unit. They came looking for us. Louise explains that because Hulka described the mission as a Status 7, it's not on the books and DOD won't acknowledge the mission, and they'll be left for dead. Everyone but Russell is quickly on board for a rescue mission. Come on, it's Czechoslovakia. We zip in, we pick them up, we zip right out again. We're not going to Moscow. It's Czechoslovakia. It's like going into Wisconsin. Well, I got this shit kicked out of me in Wisconsin once. Forget it. Russell takes a walk, and Winger follows for an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah, this is also cut. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's weird that you put stuff like this back in where it's like, this was cut for a very clear reason. And then you put it back in and it just makes it uncomfortable for everybody. Russell doesn't want to kill anybody, so Winger starts cooking up crazy situations where he might have to. 
Russell, what if the Russians were raping your sister? Come on, you know my sister. You practically raped her one night. The Russians wouldn't have to force her, they just have to buy her dinner. Russell settled on not going when Winger proposes just taking a look-see to find out about this Iron Curtain everyone's raving about, and Russell surrenders. We cut back to the border crossing where the guards are trying to put the gate arm back in place when the EM-50 rolls up. Winger and Russell pop out, posing as lost tourists, and the girls follow to distract the guards long enough for Winger to pull a gun on Flaherty and then walk them back to the guard shack. Later, we see Winger in Flaherty's uniform escorting the EM-50 down a road in a Czechoslovakian jeep. They're waved into the base where the rest of the platoon are being held. The other soldiers on the base quickly sense something's amiss, and Russell puts the EM-50 in full defensive mode. Metal doors close in front of all the windows, and it's just super tight locked up like the house on Haunted Hill, basically. What is this car still around? Does someone have this vehicle, this modded? The actual one? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'd be surprised if it survived long after the movie. A man in a watchtower shoots down at them, and Russell obliterates the tower with a rocket. For someone who wasn't interested in killing anybody, he sure had an itchy rocket launcher trigger finger. We get a moment of cartoon violence where the bad guy is running away with a slightly toasted ass like there's just smoke coming off of his pants. Mm -hmm. Winger and Stella exit the EM-50 and shoot a lock off a gate, but then duck around a corner to avoid enemy fire. They scream to Russell, who fires a flamethrower from the side of the EM-50 to scare away the soldiers. Winger tosses a grenade to bust open a door to the room that they have arbitrarily decided their friends are trapped in. Sergeant Hulka sees what's happening and cuts his way into the base through a chain link fence. Winger and Stella locate the men by listening for people being actively tortured, and they kick in a door to rescue Cruiser mid-torture session. They use a block of plastique to bust open a cell where the rest of the guys are being held. Do you recall the last time we saw Bill Murray employing plastic explosives? Caddyshack. That's right. I was going to say, it couldn't have been loose shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the door isn't completely loosened, and Stillman turns to blame the men for his incarceration, even though he's the one who led them into this country by mistake. Oxberger's heard enough of Stillman's complaining and rushes to tackle him. It's because of you people that I cannot get outside. It's your fault. It's always your fault. You are not capable of handling to take orders from me. Who is Open this door, please! please. <laughs> At the last second, Stillman leaps out of the way, and Ox takes the door down on his way into the next room. Back at the guard shack, we see Flaherty in long underwear and his uniformed partner sneaking out of the building, still bound in rope. As the EM-50 loops around to collect the guys, Russell finds himself being followed by a tank, and also in the crosshairs of a large cannon on the roof of one of the buildings. The cannon fires down at them and causes a massive explosion, but after holding on a fireball for a moment, the EM-50 emerges from the flames, undeterred, and only mildly damaged. Before the cannon can get a second shot off, Sergeant Hulka knocks the barrel up in the air and the shell is sent sailing for the guard shack at the border crossing, which blows up just as the guards are running away from it. Winger leads the platoon back to the EM-50, but they find themselves in the path of the tank and duck around a corner. The EM-50 shows up to save them and fires at the tank, somehow disabling the steering so that the tank makes a hard left into a building, and the men all load into the EM-50. They're, they're taking cover behind a lot of, a lot of barrels. Yeah. And and the barrels on the outside look like very worn. Yeah, very and, effectively aged from yeah, the exterior. But when one of them falls, you can see it's like pure cl crystal clear mirrored copper on the inside. Yeah, they're, they're clearly brand new. As they drive out of the base, Hulka jumps from the roof of a nearby structure onto the top of the EM-50, and then Louise drives it right through what remains of the guard shack back into Germany. A newspaper headline spins into frame. 
Local boys repel Yankee horde with a photo of the border guards. We cut to an airport back home as a small plane pulls up to a hero's welcome of press and public. A red carpet is rolled out to the plane. As each character emerges, they get their own headline. For Hulka, a newspaper spins with the headline, Army Hero Retires, announces Hulkaburger franchise. The date on the newspaper is actually June 26, 1981, the film's release date. Next out is Stella, whose headline is a penthouse magazine cover with a profile on America's fighting women. Next is Louise, who appears on the cover of Road Life magazine with the EM-50 for an article about her favorite tanks, Firepower versus MPG. Then comes Russell Ziski on the cover of Guts, the magazine for real men, and a poll quote reads, Ziski rates the Russians. They're pussies. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Winger appears. What's a, a surprise party? I'll kill you! Whose idea was it? <laughs> Before we see Winger's headline, though, we see Ox on the cover of Tiger Beat, which advertises a contest to win a dream date with him. Also very awkward, given the demographic of Tiger Beat. Nah, that's pretty great. Makes perfect sense. The last magazine cover is News World with the same Bill Murray photo that adorns the film's poster. The headline reads, The New Army, Can America Survive? We see Stillman standing in the crowd and a last newspaper spins into the picture. Record cold spell, Arctic Command welcomes new CO, suggesting that Stillman has been transferred to Nome, Alaska for the headache he caused. Coincidentally, his character Dan Fielding from Night Court reveals in one episode that he was a captain in the Army Reserve, and by the end of the episode, he's being transferred to the Arctic Circle. Mm. The heroes load into a car and leave the tarmac, and Ox marches a troop of soldiers away to the chorus of Do Wah Diddy as the credits roll. That's Stripes for you, everybody. I think that the uh, shorter version is definitely better, Yes. and I wish that I could have yeah. found it, but... This has everything from the short version plus some extra scenes. So at least I've covered everything that yeah, was shot. A, a lot of extra scenes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that 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 jungle sequence just goes on forever. It's a little more than a quarter of the movie, I think. That's all from the extended uh, segment. But uh, Bill Murray's great here. I think Harold mm -hmm. Ramis is a little weak. I think Lauren Michaels was kind of right. Um, but I mean, he's not bad. Yeah. But I, I don't think that he was like full strength because I don't think he was super comfortable on camera. He seems nervous in most of the film. Yeah, I can see that. It also feels like, I don't know, it feels more like he should be in a, in a drama. Yeah, and, that makes and sense. not a comedy. Yeah. Um, and I feel like most of his roles that he'll play later are very much the straight man or the soft-spoken. But they're also much smaller yeah. beyond this movie. I, mean, I think he is supposed to be the straight man here, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. definitely. So this is exactly what he's supposed to do. Yeah, but he just seems a little uncomfortable in the role. But yeah, I mean, uh, Warren Oates is great. Uh, the whole cast, like the ensemble of everybody is really fun. You know what, though? And, and maybe the extra scenes didn't help me get into it this time. But like, I love lots of little moments in this movie, but I don't like it as a whole. That makes sense. Like it, ha it has a lot of little things that I'm like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's fun. That's funny. What? But the story overall is the structure is really weird mm -hmm. because the movie clearly ends at graduation. Well, it, yeah. it reminded me a lot of the the same issues I had with Private Benjamin. You know, like yeah. it's just like, why is there a second movie tacked on at the end of this movie? Yeah. I mean, it it would have been funnier just to been like. You know, we end it with them at, at graduation with the idea that they're going off and doing this whole thing. Right. Or or maybe just like 
a moment showing them, you know, barreling through uh, the, the, the barricade and that's it. Well, maybe like, that's just end it. <laughs> maybe that's why they had to do this sequence because if at the end of the movie you're like, now they're going off to war, and it's like, yeah, oh well, that's not one. funny. <laughs> that's really sad. <laughs> so we have to show a cartoon war that they survived and got medals from because then we're like, oh, they're retired now. They can go home heroes and they're done. We don't have to worry about whether or not they murdered a bunch of people. It definitely feels like it's from a different movie. Yes, uh, but I love the car. I love. Oh, the absolutely, yeah. I think it's just a goofy, weird concept. Yeah, and I love the shape of it and everything. Yeah. I mean, like, I know it's a real GMC motorhome. Well, considering how much of this movie I didn't remember, in my mind, it stood out as a much more important part of the movie. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, like, the whole movie takes place in this motorhome. No, it doesn't. No, yeah. <laughs> I feel like this could have happened before graduation. Like, you could have actually done the motorhome being stolen and, like, this tiny little international incident before they actually come back and do their graduation ceremony yeah but it's still a thumbs up from me because i really love these guys and they're funny here i do think that this is a perfectly plausible cheech and chong movie i i actually think that could have been great but cheech and chong said they needed creative control and i think that they they it might service them to have surrendered a little bit of that control to a script because as we've discussed in the last two Cheech and Chong movies, they're very free form and sometimes it's to the detriment of the film. But they're very funny. They can deliver funny lines really well. And so I think if they had a solid script, like if, if you had these people writing for Cheech and Chong, it could be really funny. But I understand also that, you know, they're artists and they want control of their movies and, and I respect that. But yeah. I think it could have been a really funny Cheech and Chong movie. What are your thumb ratings? Oh, mine's a thumbs up. I, I really enjoy this movie. I've I've watched it dozens and dozens of times. Yeah. Um, it, to the point of where I watch it with the extended cut, and I go, "What? What is this? <laughs> this isn't right." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I feel like I'm on the fence about it, which which is funny because if you had asked me before I rewatched it, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, everybody should watch Stripes," and then I rewatched it, I'm just like. What? this is not what I remember this movie being like it, it granted extra scenes that were totally unnecessary, but that mess up the pacing a lot. It did. It really messed with it. I mean, I feel like I, I owe it a rewatch without all the extra stuff in it. So I feel like I should just, I should give it a thumbs up because of that. But I'm, I feel like I'm on the cusp here. That's I, fine. The story doesn't come together. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the structure is really weird. Um, I mean, it's really a four act film. Um, and, it, it just makes it feel very strange at the end. It makes it feel cobbled together. Yeah. Well, and and I don't feel Bill Murray, there's no real arc for him, like, without that. I think there is a little bit, because I, I think Hulk's speech gets to him, and I think he gets to a point where, when he finds out that his men have been captured. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, Sans fourth act. Oh, you're saying if they ended it at graduation? Yeah. I mean, he gets the motivational speech where he talks yeah. you guys into practicing, but you're right. It's, that's not enough of a change for him because that's the kind of thing that he would have scrambled up at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. But so you have to give it a specific no, I told, thumbs rating. I told you. I said I gave it a reluctant thumbs up. A reluctant thumbs up. Okay. I thought yeah. you were saying the opposite. A hesitant no. thumbs down. No, I said I gave it a reluctant thumbs up because I feel like I owe it a rewatch without all this extra stuff okay. in it and, it and, you know, fix the pacing and the, you know, all the bits that don't belong and it, and it'll probably be better yeah um and then uh let's look at our letterbox what are we thinking richard where do you have it uh, i have it at number eight 
uh, which puts it uh, below Knight Riders but above Atlantic City. Okay. I think I'm going to put it at 26, which would be below The Incredible Shrinking Woman and above Underground Aces. Okay. Um, I have it in 10th place, which is just under Excalibur and just above For Your Eyes Only, and that's out of 87 right now. Our director here was Ivan Reitman. He started his career with some Canucksploitation horror titles like Cannibal Girls, but quickly transitioned to comedy, directing Meatballs, This, Ghostbusters 1 and 2, Kindergarten Cop, Junior, Six Days, Seven Nights, and No Strings Attached, which I actually genuinely love. That's a really funny movie. There were two movies that came out at like the exact same time that had very similar plots mm. um, that were like friends, friends in relationships where they have sex but they're not in a relationship yeah and one of them had mila kunis and one of them had ashton kutcher but i don't remember what the other one was called but no strings attached was the ashton kutcher uh, natalie portman one did you mention evolution oh no i didn't i left that off yeah but I, uh, I, sort I, of I, ghostbusters two and a half yeah I, I i have i have nothing but fond memories yeah and, and my recent rewatch of that even was like Eh, this movie is stupid. I need to watch it again because <laughs> I, I only remember liking it, but I'm pretty sure I only ever watched it on Comedy Central in like 15-minute chunks. Uh, one of the writers here, Len Bloom, wrote Meatballs and Heavy Metal, also Beethoven's Second, Private Parts, and the 2006 Pink Panther. The other writer, Daniel Goldberg, also wrote Meatballs and Heavy Metal, which we'll see later this season, as well as Cannibal Girls for Reitman. And then they brought on Ramis to do the rewrite. Obviously, Ramis plays Russell in the film, Dan Aykroyd was also considered for this role, which I think Dan Aykroyd would have been perfectly acceptable here. Well, I mean, and I feel like he got his chance with Spies Like Us. Right, yeah. Like him and Chevy Chase. The other Bill Murray. <laughs> As we mentioned before, Ramis also wrote with the National Lampoon and a couple of successful screenplays, Meatballs and Caddyshack, on the way to this film. He also made his acting debut here, but beyond this and Dr. Egon Spengler, he doesn't have a lot of leading or even supporting roles. It's mostly just like cameos or mm -hmm. extras. He's a neurologist in Groundhog Day. He's Seth Rogen's dad in Knocked Up, but weirdly the line I quote most comes from his performance as the Dean of Admissions, Don Durkett in Orange County. <laughs> Sean, you're my same height. That is neat. He did direct a lot of great stuff, including National Lampoon's Vacation, Groundhog Day, Multiplicity, and the Bedazzled remake, and he wrote or co-wrote the screenplays for Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, Back to School, Armed and Dangerous, a lot of good stuff. The music here was from Elmer Bernstein. He scored the Animal House series, Delta House. He also scored Meatballs, The Great Santini, and then so far on the show we've covered Saturn 3, Airplane, Going Ape. Uh, later this season he composes the score for American Werewolf in London, but perhaps most famously the Ghostbusters score, but maybe that's just me that I always think of that first when I hear Elmer Bernstein. Quick question though. So this the the music here, the dun 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 dun, dun, dun I'm not yeah. gonna be able to sing it. But is that from this or is that Yes. Okay. Because it's original to this. Because it's so iconic and sometimes things that are so iconic, I'm just like, Oh, maybe this was a thing before this like if you were to use the william tell overture and somebody might identify it with a movie but sure, you're like yeah. no, no 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 this is a classical piece of music and i'm like i couldn't tell if that was what this was or if it's original to this it's just so iconic that i that i know it that well and i think part of why it sticks in your memory so well is because the movie is very aimless that they just 
use the song over and over again to bring us in and out of every scene. Yeah, but it was like in my mind, I was like, oh, no, it's probably like, you know, like a bonanza kind of thing. Like it's something from an old yeah, TV, TV show, show and they're just using it because it sounds like an action movie. No, you it's know? it's like, original Bernstein. Yeah. Our cinematographer here was Bill Butler. He was the DP of Jaws, Capricorn 1, Omen 2, Rocky 2, and last season Can't Stop the Music and It's My Turn. Later he lights Rocky 3, Sting 2, Rocky 4, Child's Play, Hot Shots, and Beethoven's 2nd, which I only mentioned because we're going to keep coming back to that. Editor Harry Keller just cut Stir Crazy for us last season, and he's back to edit Transylvania 6 5000. Editor Michael Luciano, there's three editors for some reason. Editor Michael <laughs> Luciano edited Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Fly to the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, Emperor of the North, and most recently on the show, Hardly Working. And then our third editor, Ava Ruggiero, also edited Mountain Men for last season. Well, whoever did the last of the cuts. And did usually a good they're job. in sort of a chronological <laughs> order, yeah. Bill Murray played John. He made his big break on SNL. On the show, we've covered his work in Where the Buffalo Roam, Caddyshack, and Polyester. And obviously, he's back next season for Tootsie. Apparently, Chevy Chase and John Belushi were both considered for this role as well. I think John Belushi and Harold Ramis feels like a way overpowered yeah. combination. Because Bill Murray and, and John Belushi work because Bill Murray could be the straight man in that situation mm -hmm. or to like mm -hmm. balance him out. But the two of them, it would just be... Belushi completely running over Harold Ramis. I can't imagine Harold Ramis tackling John Belushi to keep him from escaping the base. Um, and Chevy Chase, I don't think, is charismatic enough, even at the time, to play this character. I mean, I don't feel like this character is too far off of a, like a, a Fletch situation. Like, I think Fletch feels more like an asshole than john winger does no I, I i guess i agree with that but i feel like this character could be that sure maybe and and because we do have the line um when when winger is saying we need to go back and save these guys they're our friends and then russell says they hate you do you realize they hate you and he's like oh what how how why would they hate me that's so mean of them mm -hmm. and it's like i didn't get the impression that they did hate him i kind of thought they all looked up to him and and appreciated his his tutelage sort of um, but I feel like if it were if it were Chevy Chase, they would hate him. Yeah. Like that would be the point is that he's just a dick to these people all the time, and yeah. it's funny. Warren Oates played Sergeant Hulka. He was Lyle Gorch in The Wild Bunch. He's the father in Badlands. He's Benny in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Speaking of Fletch, yeah, yeah. During the obstacle course scene, Reitman suggested that they should drag Oates into the mud with them to see what would happen. And in the ensuing chaos, Oates chipped a tooth and then chewed Reitman out for the incident. He passed away from a heart attack about a year after the film was released. PJ Souls played Stella. Before this, she had appeared in Carrie, Halloween, and Rock and Roll High School. We saw her last year in a very similar part as Private Wanda Winter in Private Benjamin. Kim Basinger was offered the role, but her agent asked an impossible price, and so she was skipped for this part. And I think PJ Souls is definitely the choice here. We met her at the New Beverly for a Carrie screening, and we got pictures with her and William Catt, and they were both very nice people. Sean Young played Louise. She's back next season as Rachel in Blade Runner and later Chani in Dune. She was initially cast as Vicki Vale in Burton's Batman, but broke her arm during rehearsals and was replaced with Kim Basinger. She famously campaigned hard for the role of Catwoman in the follow-up Batman Returns, but was passed over for Michelle Pfeiffer. Later, she shows up as a trans woman in both Ace Ventura Pet Detective and Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde. John Candy played Ox. We saw him handing out orange whips in Blues Brothers last season. He's back later for planes, trains, and automobiles. 
Summer Rental, Uncle Buck, Home Alone, Canadian Bacon, Cool Runnings, and Spaceballs, among others. He and Warren Oates had just appeared together in Spielberg's 1941, but they had no scenes together in that film. John Larroquette plays Captain Stillman, probably best known for Night Court or The John Larroquette Show, but most recently The Good Fight. Yeah, yeah, he was, and he's pretty menacing on that show. Um, he's great also on Boston Legal. Uh, right, yes, that's which true. Which is another good fun role for him. John Volstad played Stillman's aide. He was a bellboy in Midnight Madness last season and a shop owner in the first Leprechaun film. John Deal played Cruiser. Before this, he briefly appeared in the background of Falling in Love Again last season. And as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, this guy's going to talk because I know this face. And he didn't say anything in the scene. And it's like, oh, no, that was just his first movie. <laughs> he didn't say anything. <laughs> he was Larry Zito on Miami Vice and Chris on The John Larroquette Show. So they must have remained friends. Lance Legault played Colonel Glass. He was the narrator on Airwolf and Alamo Joe Rogan on a show called Werewolf, which makes me want to combine them into a third show called Where Airwolf, <laughs> where every full moon the protagonist turns into Jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> 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 would you watch that, Richard? Uh, I, I might. I wouldn't. <laughs> I just want to make it. I don't want to watch it. Roberta Layton played Anita. She was Liza Williams in Barracuda. That's the, the girlfriend from the beginning of the film. Uh winger's girlfriend but mostly she works on soaps over 80 episodes each for days of our lives and the young and the restless judge reinhold plays elmo he ended up with all the stoner jokes from the cheech and chong draft he's detective billy rosewood in the beverly hills cop series he was brad hamilton pirate and masturbator in fast times at ridgemont high and he is the stepfather of santa's son in the santa claus movies he also plays the father in the third and fourth installments of the beethoven series replaced in the fifth film by stripes co-star dave thomas the antagonist mayor of the fifth Beethoven movie is played by other Stripes co-star, John Larroquette. William Lucking played the recruiter at the beginning. We saw him last year in Ninth Configuration, The Mountain Men, and Coast to Coast. More recently, he starred as Piney on Sons of Anarchy, and sadly he just passed away in October of last year. Fran Ryan played Dowager in Cab, that's the lady with the mink stole. She was Mrs. Samuels in The Long Riders for us last season. Joe Flaherty played Border Guard. He's another SCTV alum, probably best known as the guy who says jackass in Happy Gilmore, <laughs> which is unfortunate because he has a lot of great roles, but that's yeah. obviously a really funny one. I'm sure he's not hes not upset about it. No, yeah, but I mean, it's either that or the Western Union Telegram. Exactly, yeah. That, I would say that that's the second, but actually I always think first of Freaks and Geeks where he played the dad on that show, but he's really great on there. I feel like you might be upset about the Happy Gilmore thing just because everywhere you go people yell jackass. I think that, <laughs> sure, that would be annoying, but also I, I'm, I'd be happy to be the kind of actor who has a catchphrase that people shout at him in places. Yeah, okay. Dave Thomas played the MC during the mud wrestling. He was the head writer of SCTV at the time, where he famously portrayed Doug, half of the famous McKenzie brothers, who would go on to star in their own film, Strange Brew, two years later. Robert J. Wilkie played General Barnicky. This was his final film. He was Wallace in The Magnificent Seven, Jim Pierce in High Noon, and the first mate of the Nautilus in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This film reunited him with Warren Oates after they'd played brothers Andrew and Flory Shelton in an episode of The Rifleman 23 years earlier. Lois Hamilton played Stillman's girlfriend. We just saw her a few movies back as one of Roger Moore's female passengers in The Cannonball Run. She later appeared with John Candy and John Larroquette in Summer Rental. Joseph X. Flaherty played Sergeant Crocker. <laughs> Reitman had intended to cast SCTV's Joe Flaherty and said, get me Joe Flaherty for this role, for the Czech border guard, but the part was mistakenly offered to Joe X. Flaherty, some random guy, 
And once the confusion was cleared up, Joe X. Flaherty was offered the much smaller role of Sergeant Crocker as an apology for the mix-up. <laughs> Timothy Busfield played Soldier with Mortar. This was his first film. He appears with Larroquette and John Deal as recurring characters on the West Wing, though Busfield has the biggest part there as White House correspondent Danny Concanon. He was also Elliot Weston on 30-something and Poindexter in Revenge of the Nerds. Dawn Clark played a mud wrestler. She was one of the pom-pom girls in Hollywood Nights, and she's Candy in Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, which is the second of the three films. Pamela Bowman played Cruiser's Girl. She was Janie Richter in Scared to Death. I think that's the second girl who shows up to replace the first girl that was <laughs> like protagonist of the movie. Mm -hmm. They like switch girls in the middle of the movie. Mm. It's very strange. Bill Paxton played Soldier. He's credited as Soldier. For sure did not see him in this, but he's credited. This is his first credited film, and he's back next season in Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. He's famously the only actor to have been killed by a Terminator, Alien, and Predator, unless you count Lance Henriksen, but it's arguable whether he was killed by an alien because mm -hmm. he was never alive in the first place, spoiler alert. Donald Gibb played Bouncer in Mud Wrestling Bar. Gibb was reunited with Timothy Busfield in Revenge of the Nerds 1 and 2 as Ogre and Poindexter, respectively. He also shows up in a Night Court episode with Lara Kett. We've previously reviewed Gibb's performance as professional wrestler Herman the German in MacGyver episode Split Decision. Mm -hmm. Dennis Quaid played an extra at the graduation ceremony. I didn't see him there either, but supposedly this was a consolation prize for not being cast as Russell. He was invited to appear somewhere in the graduation scene and was on set anyway to support his wife. So far, we've seen him in The Long Riders, Gorp, All Night Long, and Caveman. I think that's everything for Stripes. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron, Louis Adams. As a $5 patron of the show, Louie now has access to 25 full-size 70s reviews and 27 mini-sodes from 1980, as well as a hand in choosing next month's film. For March of 1972, $5 patrons are choosing between the following seven titles. Silent Running, Douglas Trumbull's post-apocalyptic environmental sci-fi film about a group of men charged with protecting forests in big bubbles on board spaceships. <laughs> it stars Bruce Dern, Cliff Potts, and Ron Rifkin. We just watched that. We did. What's Up Doc, a screwball romantic comedy directed by the late Peter Bogdanovich and written by Buck Henry, David Newman, and Robert Benton. It stars Barbara Streisand, Ryan O'Neill, Madeline Kahn, and Austin Pendleton. Love those four. Slaughterhouse-Five, George Roy Hill's adaptation of everyone's favorite Kurt Vonnegut novel, telling the story of Billy Pilgrim's non-linear adventures with the Tralfamadorians, starring Michael Sachs, Ron Liebman, and Valerie Perrine. Pink Flamingos. John Waters' postmodern gross-out exploitation film about Babs Johnson competing with her neighbors for the title of Filthiest Person Alive. It stars Divine, Mink Stoll, Edith Massey, and a whole bunch more Dreamlanders. The Godfather, the first installment of Francis Ford Coppola's crime drama trilogy about the aging patriarch of a crime family and the passing of the mantle to one of his three sons. It stars Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Diane Keaton, Robert Duvall, Sterling Hayden, Talia Shire, Abe Vigoda, and many, many others. Tales from the Crypt, Trog director Freddie Francis's British anthology horror film that precedes To All a Good Night with a Killer Santa story by eight years. It features appearances from Joan Collins, Peter Cushing, Roy Dotrice, and Patrick McGee. And finally, 
Frogs. George McCowan's creature feature about an upper-class southern family whose home is swarmed with a horde of killer frogs. It stars Ray Milland, Sam Elliott, and Adam Rourke, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this March. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing SOB, which IMDb describes like so. A movie producer who's made a huge flop tries to salvage his career by revamping his film as an erotic production where its family-friendly star takes her top off. We leave you now with a trailer for SOB. Blake Edwards, the man who gave the world the Pink Panther, then went on to create a perfect 10, knows everything there is to know about Hollywood. All right, quiet now on a bell. That's why he wants to destroy it. The funniest way possible. Lorimar presents Blake Edwards, S.O.B. A simple movie about ordinary people who do ordinary things. I breed armadillos. Okay. Stay on the beach, huh? Sure. But most of all, it's about a man who's one crazy guy. He's gone for sure. Thanks, Tully! That's the answer! You want America's G-rated sweetheart to appear in the nude? Why not? Starring Julie Andrews, as you've never seen her before. Topless. The hundred million dollars at the box office. William Holden as the director. Nothing like a uniform to keep an orgy organized. I have to be shooting by September 1. Richard Mulligan as the producer. I must warn you, my hands are lethal weapons. Larry Hagman as the studio exec. It could be your one chance to, to recoup all the bonds. Robert Vaughn as the studio head. I promise you, we're going to get it. We're going to get it before the stockholders meet. Shelley Winters as the agent. You can smoke dope and end up going steady with your ass and You're just one of the gang. You, you're Peter Pan. Loretta Swit as the gossip columnist. I hear that Felix tried to commit suicide. You heard the Felix tried? <laughs> Ridiculous! Robert Weber as the press agent. But we gotta sit down and get our story straight like me and... Robert Preston as the doctor. Can she work? Is Batman a transvestite? Who knows? I know. With Marissa Berenson... Oh, hi, darling. And Stuart Margolin. Blake Edwards, S.O.B. The motion picture that exposes America's sweetheart just for laughs. I'll fix it so you never do another picture in this town as long as you live. S.O.B.